here we go. This is of your second lemon. So, perhaps the reflection is a little bit too, how do you say that, foreshortened, perhaps? But it is very good, and the highlighting is nice, and the book background is pretty much the same. It looks that the shadow is a little bit more purpley than the way I see it in the picture, but um, the shape of the lemon is very good. The shadows are good. And in the reflection, I'd say perhaps it's too yellow and it should be a little bit more brown because of the table surface. Do you have any good things you want to say? Um, well, I'd say that perhaps the brown is a little bit too light. It should be a bit darker. But otherwise, I think that's pretty good. Okay, there you have it. And that would be a 10-year-old friend of mine's comments on my second lemon. This has been so fun with you all. Thank you so much for joining me last month as we attempted W.G. Collingwood's first paper from the Fessile Club papers. Welcome back to Bestowing the Brush. Dallas Noctegal here. We just wrapped up our first month in attempting a virtual version of the Fessole Club, crafted by W.G. Collingwood at the request of Charlotte Mason in 1891. I am blown away by the amount of interest and willingness to join from all of you. It has been wonderful to see your growth even in one short month. You all improved in the art of seeing. If I'm counting right, I had at least 75 entries in three weeks. Most of you were able to complete a couple or more, and I'm glad we have the ease of technology to do that. However, this month's paper has a different aim. Now that you've gotten a feel for some visual critique, those things you need to carry on with you forward as we draw more things together. As you will hear soon in this paper, Collingwood is challenging us to do some hard seeing work, but be encouraged. You can keep trying as you make mistakes. No drawing is perfect. This month, you only get to submit one drawing to me, and this time I'd like it by email. Take your photo straight on in natural light, one entry per person for the month, and send it to bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. Please include first name and age of your children's work and specify which are mom or dads. This way I have a more permanent way to document how this is going and from where I'm getting them. Please still post on Instagram as you are able and willing. Others and I still want to see what you're working on. I'll post a couple of mine as well. As you've already heard, I'm not immune to critique nor should I be. So. If any of you have children who'd like to voice record comments on my drawing this month, have them do so. Again, send them to my email or direct message me an Instagram voice recording. I will of course keep them anonymous. Children have such a discerning eye, so stay tuned for when I post my painting. A couple more notes here. Maybe you have noticed that some of my comments this round have asked the younger children to paint me some things in brushwork. If you are under the age of nine or are still a very new beginner in drawing and painting, 
I encourage you to only use the brush for anything you send me. Stationary decorations, original designs, an illustrated tale, an imaginative drawing, or even a candy drawing. Listen to episode number 19 called Memory Drawing for how to have that type of fun drawing lesson. Why am I asking you to do this? Well, that paintbrush is like a weapon in your hand and you need to learn how to wield it. So save the more taxing pencil work for after a quiet growing time where you can strengthen your drawing muscles to one day paint as well as the great John Ruskin. You'll be seeing some of his work later this month. Okay, to join this month's virtual Fesole Club, step one, listen in a minute here to Collingwood's second paper for you and be totally inspired. Step two, ready the materials mentioned. Carry with you what you learn from the lemon. Listen for key to-dos and what not to do from your unseen and unknown teacher. Step three, Then observe, draw, paint, make mistakes, and then draw again. Step four, submit your one drawing for the month anytime starting now, April 3rd, 2019. And then submissions will close at 6 p.m. Central Time on April 24th. Here's W.G. Collingwood in his second paper. The Fessile Club Papers by W.G. Collingwood, paper number two. At their third lesson, usually, beginners in landscape drawing ask, please show us how to do trees. And though the Fessile Club is not intended for landscape only, the request is sure to come and may be forestalled in this second lesson. It is a very reasonable request too, so long as you understand that there is no royal road to doing trees and that no rule of thumb nor secret of the brush is worth having compared with an observant eye and a trained hand. A tree in summer is a very difficult thing to draw adequately. The best of painters can only tell some of the facts about it. A conventional or symbolic manner of tree drawing may be learnt with ease, but what is it worth? When you are a skilled painter, you may adopt a conventional manner that you find to express your own feeling and satisfy your artistic conscience. But to begin, you must begin with the simplest facts, taking a few at a time. In the winter, half of the year trees are not such hopeless subjects because they have no twinkling, troublesome leaves upon them. We can study their boughs in peace and wait until summer to attack the second half of the problem, the foliage. It is not for the sake of the anatomy that we should do this. For anatomy, the scientific knowledge of the structure is not what we are now studying. It is an interesting study and has its own great value in its own place, but its use to the sketcher has sometimes been overestimated. As long as an artist is sketching from nature, his business is to draw what he sees, the external appearance and the expression of life and character. You might study a hundred grinning skulls and be less able than ever to catch your friend's smile and glance, which are just what you want as an artist to record, not the orbital indices and dental formulae, which are affairs of science, not art. 
So you may know all about the botany of a tree, its fibrous structure and mechanical stability and so forth, and still care nothing for its own self, its life and character. But there is something about a tree that you should know. In front of my window, there used to be an old oak, which in summer was one huge cloud of foliage. Early in the morning, with the sun full on it, you saw a great flat mass of indistinguishable interwoven color, shadowless and motionless against an opaline background of hazy felside, with tender blue coming behind its topmost crown and its lower boughs faintly relieved in warm light against the deeper azure of the undisturbed lake, beneath the reflected rocks and copsewood of heights beyond. It was a single mass of sweet harmony, with not even the accentuation of a strong note of light or dark, all in pure modulation of transparent color. The delicatest obad of a full orchestra playing pianissimo. To paint it, well, it might have been attempted by Turner, almost achieved by Alfred Hunt, but what would a botanist have seen in it or done with it? And then, as the sun moved round, little shadows crept in among the boughs, and the shaping of the tree began to be visible. Out of the majestic mist of greenery, there gradually emerged a solid dome, overarching a great temple, as it were, stories piled on stories, crypts beneath and chambers above, between thick masses of leafage interconnected by curious galleries and crooked stairways running along the lesser branches, and many corridored complexities, like a palace of fairyland. Through the midst of it, you could just trace the great trunk, like the branstock of the mythic hall of King Volsung, who, says the saga, let build a noble hall in such a wise that a big oak tree stood therein and the limbs of the tree blossomed fair out over the roof of the hall, while below stood the trunk within it, and the said trunk did men call Branstock. It was indeed the palace of the birds, for in every room of it the leaf curtains shadowed happy tenanted nests, and you could watch the flash of wings going in and out of deep recesses as parent birds carried the morning meal to their young. You could not draw the glittering and the fluttering and the singing that made the summer morning an enchanting hour. But if you knew how and loved it well enough, you could have studied out the solid leaf masses and suggested the cavernous chambers of the great oak. But not by help of botany or knowledge of tree anatomy. It was the poetry, the appearance to an admiring eye, the expression of life and character that made it a subject for an artist. That is what you have to learn as an amateur, a lover of art and nature. So then, in this preliminary lesson of the leafless oak, we are not to suppose that a study of bare boughs will put us far on the way to painting foliage, but it will teach us some facts about trees which hasty sketchers are apt to overlook, and some principles of drawing some tricks of fence with brush point and edge, which will stand us in good stead later on. First of all, 
To get the outline of the whole, as seen against the sky, for it has an outline as a whole, like the lemon we did last month, that is to say, a limit beyond which the branches do not reach, but touched by them, as if there were a gossamer net thrown over the tree and drawn deftly round it. The outline need not follow every little indentation between twig and twig. It is to block out the main contour, so that we may not find, after laboring at the boughs, that our tree is without balance or character. It has been said that the outlines of different species of trees resemble the outlines of their leaves, more or less, and you observe that the birch is, in general shape, broad at the base from its slender stem, and the fir at a distance is a spike. And the outline of our oak, with many and varying indentations, not angular and spiky, but forming curved bays and swelling promontories, does somewhat resemble an oak leaf. The next thing is to indicate the position and direction of the stem and boughs, without attempting their thickness yet a while. The stem, fairly upright and straight, with a little curvature in his upper part. The main boughs at all angles to the stem. And here you begin to feel that the tree is not a flat thing like a pressed fern or a seaweed dried upon paper. It is a solid mass. That is, some branches come toward you and some retreat foreshortened in perspective. Though the perspective is such as no mathematical rule can teach nor instrument draw. Even those boughs which stand out to right and left of the stem, and at first seem to be quite without foreshortening, when you come to look at them, are found to be full of twist and turn, sometimes advancing and sometimes retiring a little, so that there is nothing that is not in perspective. How are we to give the look of this transparent solidity? If we saw the tree in a fog, the farther branches would be fainter, and the nearer ones darker. But this is not in a fog, and there is practically no aerial perspective to help us out. There are parts of the more distant boughs, which are quite sharp and distinct, and some of the near branches are so faint, where the light comes on them, that they can hardly be distinguished. The only way is to draw correctly, and trust to honest rightness as the best policy, Get all the main lines into their proper places, neglecting detail, and you will find that in spite of difficulty, your drawing is beginning to look like a solid tree, a tree that you can see into. This is the second thing to be learnt about trees. The third stage is to give the proper thickness to the main boughs. You observe that the trunk is thickest at the base, and wherever a bough shoots out from it, it must be diminished, as a matter of course, by the substance of that bough. The trunk above the fork plus the bough equals the trunk below the fork. But it does not look so at first sight. The diminution seems smaller than you might perhaps expect, because the substance of the bough is almost lost in the trunk. As when a little soap bubble loses itself in a big one, Consequently, the stem is diminished by only a fraction of the breadth of that bough. This happens everywhere, at every fork, 
down to the smallest. No compasses can measure and divide the breadth of all your boughs and twigs. It must be done by the eye and the hand. And so many little twigs part from every branch that the diminution goes on from root to top almost imperceptibly, never to be measured or done by rule. But if you understand this principle of tree architecture, you will be on your guard against drawing the stem like a post or the boughs like a bundle of worms. And on the other hand, you will not make them diminish too rapidly by fits and starts, but small by degrees and beautifully less. Fourth stage, all these boughs, even in the stiffest oak, radiate from the root. You notice that fact much more in an ash or a birch, but we chose an oak for this lesson because it is important to see that this is a law of growth which no trees can really evade. The branches are not like arrows shot into the stem, nor rafters laid against it, even in fir trees. They start from it like branch railway lines along which the sap must run without turning such awkward corners as would cause stoppage or congestion of traffic. Notice the junction of the main boughs with the oak trunk, and you will see how cunningly they turn at the last moment and join the main line. The only exception is in the case of the lower boughs of a very old tree, in which the later growths of the huge trunk have overlaid and concealed the original point of junction. And fifthly, all these boughs are curved. The stem itself is not as straight as a pillar. It leans a little this way, and again a little the other way. In the older branches, with the wreckage of many winters and the stiffening overgrowth of many summers, their first springing leap into life has been sobered down into steady-going strength and stubbornness. But you will not find a straight line. Every inch of bough is curved, more or less, subtly and stiffly in places, but still curved. The very stiffness of the curvature is part of the character of the thing. An oak bough is nothing like a worm. It does not lie along the ground in floppy, wriggling indecision. Perhaps I do worms a wrong. So, let us say, a bit of soft string or knitting wool, flung loosely on the table, curved, but not in living curvature, undulating but not in lines of action. Think of what an oak bough has to do for its living, how it wants to reach light and air, but when it starts from a stem already standing straight up, it must strike out in some other direction and struggle to get away from the interference of the stem and the leaves above it and around it. And at the same time, it must resist the temptation to succumb to gravity and sink downwards to the earth which if it did, it would lose all. So there are many different forces at work to guide the bow and pull it in different ways at different times and stages of its growth, escape from interference on various sides, struggle against the attraction of gravity and aspiration to light and air. No wonder it never grows straight. But energetic thing as it is, it would be a wonder if it ever looked limp. Now that you have noticed the fact and the nature of living, springing curvature as contrasted with dead, inert wriggle, you have only to look at your boughs and to do your best to give their true lines. And having completed the main branches, go on 
as time and patience serve, to the more obviously and gracefully curved twigs, putting in as many as you can with care, and not resting satisfied with mere scrabble and fuzziness. This you can do with any leafless tree in wood, park, or garden. It need not be a particularly noble or finely grown specimen. It had better not be some rarity, which you fancy because of its strangeness, but such a tree as you are sure to find not far away, standing well against the sky or plain background of wall. Keep these points or stages in mind and try for one at a time. One, outline of whole tree. Two, placing and perspective of main boughs. Three, their thickness and tapering. Four, their radiation. Five, their curvature. And six, the smaller twigs. Then, to paint what you have penciled. For by now, it is likely that your drawing will be rather messy and you will be glad of the opportunity of fixing the true lines in color, and then cleaning away the mistakes with India rubber or bread. Take a brush with a point to it and paint your tree. The finer boughs with the point, the broader with the edge. If you are a town dweller, perhaps lamp black will be color enough. But if you live in the country, and especially if you work on a sunny day, you will find many pretty warm colors in the stem and greater branches and purple grays in the shadows and across them. It would be wiser not to attempt a background. The tree is troublesome enough in itself. The drawing will not perhaps be a very beautiful picture. The value will be in what you learn rather than in what you produce. It is to give you power to put a weapon in your hands that I ask you to take all this trouble. Do you remember how the story of the Branstock ended? How one evening an old man, one-eyed, whom they knew for Father Odin, came and smote his sword to the hilt into the trunk and said, Whoso draweth this sword from this stock shall have the same as a gift from me, and shall find in good sooth that never bear he better sword in hand than this is. Author's Notes In the second month, our correspondence class already began to get into difficulties. A quotation from the manuscript criticism sent around with a portfolio of drawings will show what the difficulties were. Quote, in writing the article, I omitted to consult the clerk of the weather and entirely failed to foresee that some of the members would be prevented by east winds from working out of doors. I had hoped, however, that most, if not all, the members would be able to find a window in their house or in a friend's from which a tree would be visible. And I am greatly concerned to hear that one cannot find a tree within a mile of her home. A country in which trees do not exist, or are hidden by fog, or are made inaccessible by storm and cold in April, is unfortunately situated for fine art. When Ruskin abused the developments of modern civilization, the destruction of the country, the smoke fogs, and storm wind of the 19th century, he had some reason for his bitterness after all. To avoid this difficulty, in the following year, the subject was varied thus. Students who cannot see a tree from a window or find it too cold for out-of-doors sketching can draw a bough such as may be picked up in a country walk, 
blown from a tree or broken with permission from a hedge. The bough should be pretty well set with twigs and not too much battered to look like a miniature tree when planted in the room, in a flower pot, or in a pile of books. If you happen to find a hazel and like playing with your work, as most people with imagination do, you might hang a couple of Christmas tree tinsel fruits on the leafless twigs and illustrate the rhyme, I had a little nut tree. But in any case, spread a sheet or a white paper behind the bough. Since you cannot possibly follow out the twigs if they come against the furniture, pictures and wall patterns which crowd the ordinary dwelling room, there is a way out of most difficulties and this gave some pretty results. With the portfolio, I sent round some plates from modern painters to illustrate the subject. The aspen, to show how delicately and thoroughly such a leafless tree might be drawn. Good and bad tree drawing, with some necessary elucidation from the text. And the dryad's toil and young ivy, to exemplify bow drawing and springing curvature. Okay. There we have it. Thank you, William Gershom Collingwood. We will have you our trees soon. Actually, just send them to me at bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. Go ahead and send them by April 24th, 6 p.m. Central Time. Thanks, everyone, and happy drawing.